0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and co-founder, Ed Condon, who may or may not be back from the leave that he took or did not take after the birth of his child. Ed, what is your status?
1: Uh, I, think, I think the status is whatever most new first time parents would say which is i have no idea what my status is right now <laughs> i'm living in a waking twilight zone i have not slept in 36 hours um i i did i go on paternity leave I, there were days there was a period of your baby days. is what your baby is is, uh, is is 2 weeks old yes my baby is 2 weeks old um and there were there was a period of days there around the birth where i was not working i'm clear on that there were a few days after that where I think I was also not working, but I think this week I've been mostly back at my desk. I don't know. I've been trying not to quantify it because I would I would hate to think I've been back yeah. only on a part time basis and then like add up stories I wrote or helped <laughs> edit or publish or whatever, right. and then realize that was as good as I'd ever done beforehand, and just be like, oh, so <laughs> guess, did my productivity really suck all along? Or you know, I don't yes. know, but. Uh well I kind of have a bone to pick with you about that because I I keep
0: telling you to, you know not to stop working and I keep saying you know you don't need to be working and stuff and and you you keep saying oh, I just want to do this and I just want to do that and then today you kind of implied that I had been expecting you to work and and I Wait, I was
1: no if, I did not. Oh, I think When did I?
0: Do? Well, I don't know. Maybe you didn't. But uh, if you if you have that I I have a bone to pick with you if you have the impression that I have been encouraging you to work because I have been on the contrary
1: discouraging you from working. You you have, in fact, been strongly discouraging me from working. Where did you get the impression that I was suggesting that you had been encouraging me to work? maybe it was nothing. It doesn't matter. How is Mrs. Condon? Uh, She is also tired. I believe it. And how Um, Miss Condon? She apparently is not tired at all, because she's (laughs) capable of raising hell for (laughs) 16 hours straight and consuming her own body weight uh, every couple of hours. And I—yeah, I— Cap- I mean, she's clearly healthy. Capable uh, of that. raising hell for 16 hours straight
0: is, uh, is a family trait. Um, yeah. Capable of drinking her own body weight every couple of hours is something of a family trait. Yeah. Uh, does the I, young
1: lady, uh, has she taken up smoking yet? She has not taken up smoking yet, and I will not allow her to take up smoking until she's at least 14. Oh my gosh, you're going to get in. A- that's going to be the thing. That's, that's going to be the thing for which we are done. Oh, I'm not. Man. I look I yeah I'm not going to I I have no intention of imposing um artificial there are enough things that I would like my daughter to take seriously in her moral life growing up that I'm not going to waste parental bullets on things I couldn't care less about like smoking um well I I don't I make it a point not to weigh in
0: on other people's parenting so I just I just will say that I'm glad that you guys are adjusting well to uh, to the arrival of Ms. Condon, and um, I know that you have been uh, besieged with well wishes of various kinds. And um, and, and you're, you're in this, I feel badly for you, because you guys are sort of in this tricky situation where you've had some help, but you've also been impeded from having help because of the travel restrictions between
1: America and the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah, my in-laws have not been able to make it over because... For reasons passing my understanding, that that border is closed. Other borders are open, but for some reason, that is a that is a problem one, um, which it, I find.
0: And they couldn't. On, I
1: mean, they couldn't fly, let's say, to Toronto and then fly because
0: I think the border. I think the border is open with Canada, and they couldn't like fly to Toronto and then fly to.
1: Uh, the the last time we checked in on how we could do it legally was they could have flown to either Reykjavik or Mexico City and done oh. two weeks in either of those cities oh. and then flown to. The states, but that would have been that would have been prohibitive for other reasons, so no it hasn't happened yet that which has been bad but I tell you what um the so something that has made me that that's been incredible is that people in our local parish have been incredibly generous and supportive and dropping meals off and you know all sorts of wonderful incredible things people I've never met before um and that has been really i i mean I, I, I'm struggling for the right word for it because I've never felt this sensation before. Kind. To, you know, Lovely. i feel like, yeah, <laughs> like, like spontaneously generous and kind well, and thoughtful. And it's like I don't, I'm I'm simultaneously floored by this and deeply grateful and also utterly like flummoxed. Like this is you don't even know us and you're being so generous and it, like it really like and these like you know parents of large families of their own and you know. Just- in- incredible amounts of local generosity we've been the recipients of, and so I'm incredibly grateful for that i you know I'm feeling a little bit you know guilty at times, like you know I feel like I'm Blanche dubois here, just you know relying on the kindness of strangers, but you know it um that's how it is that's how it is yeah i i am it has been a moment of personal growth for me to to gratefully and hopefully graciously accept uh the kindness of others, which is not something I'm normally temperamentally disposed to doing, so i'm yeah that has been. Wonderful and eye-opening for me and, uh, and deeply edifying. Uh, so, yeah, all of that. Yeah, we are none of us self-sufficient. No.
0: No. Um, okay, well, uh, I, I'm glad for that. Now, I am curious because you and Mrs. Condon do not worship at your um, territorial parish for certain reasons which are, I think, for which your territorial pastor has been understanding. How, how is it that the, the local parish uh, has even known of
1: the birth of your child? Well, we're not totally absent from our territorial parish. It's true. We go to another one for reasons that are as much historical as anything else. This is not our first time living in DC and um you know, there are other places in the city that we've known people and um and have been going to for, for years now. But I mean we do go to our local territorial parish infrequently, but reasonably often, I okay. think is the way I wonder form. you know, we're we're not unknown in the pews on a Sunday there that's for sure. Oh, okay. Um and also I have family in the parish. I have you know extended family in the parish. And you know it's a, it's a, DC is not that big a town and Catholic DC is very much not that big a town. Um so yeah, it it's you know it really has been it has been great. Um it's really something. Good. I'm really glad to hear
0: that that's great and that experience of being well um, loved and well thought of is a is a really it is um it's a it's a nice signal grace isn't it it's a it's a really nice sort of uh, when I say consolation I don't mean consolation like a consolation prize or in the vernacular sense of the thing but in in the spiritual sense it is a, it is a sign of the presence of God is it not it
1: is it is to me it has been a real sign of authentic ecclesia um, you know this is this is very much the experience of the Church as a people. Of um, people with a mutual concern, which has been deeply edifying.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks be to God. Well, I do. I'm glad that you brought that up because it was a good way to to kind of start. Because I want to talk about um, local parishes and uh, and territorial parishes because um, we did uh, some reporting this week. And when I say we did some reporting this week, what I really mean is um, pillar contributing editor Brendan Hodge, who is a, a friend of ours and a guy with a a real aptitude for. Data Analytics, uh, did a report this week with which I helped just a, a very little. Um, and I only say that because people might be wondering why both our names on it and, and it's really because I helped just a very little and Brendan did the heavy lifting. But we did a report that we published this week about um, kind of the demographic trends that are impacting parishes um, in one diocese, and then demographic some demographic trends that are impacting parishes and parish life in in many many dioceses. We had mentioned, I think, I think we probably talked about it on the show last week. I can't remember, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, but um, it, w- it was earlier this month that the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, announced that. By the way, do you at all find it interesting that um, the Cleveland Indians have changed their name, but the Cincinnati Reds have not changed their name? Isn't that also kind of like the Washington? redskins and isn't that also a name that came from a racial stereotype effectively?
1: Uh I'm I am unaware. If I I thought they were originally the Cincinnati Red Sox and the um, Oh,
0: so you're right. Oh, that's right. I had forgotten they are indeed they were indeed in originally the Cincinnati Red Stockings. I thought that it was kind of like the that they had taken their name in some way from uh like the like the Washington Redskins from a, an ethnic stereotype. But you're right, that's not the case. Thank you for cleaning no. Okay, so no. with that I'm, out, of I'm the glad way. I had that knowledge there to <laughs> so they don't they didn't have to change the name. Okay, With that out of the way, I think we've talked on the show before about the fact that the Archdiocese of Cincinnati has embarked on this project to um, uh, effectively consolidate considerably um, their parishes and to sort of lessen their footprint. Um, the The project will involve kind of grouping parishes together. Consulting with parishioners, um beginning to sort of make decisions about what um worship sites can be sort of sustained and what can't, and then um, merging or closing parishes and probably closing churches church buildings and and the reason for that is just that there are fewer Catholics and fewer priests in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati uh, than there once were, and you know fewer of them go to mass and so the archdiocese is kind of like. Involved in this process, which many other dioceses have been involved in as well, but the Archdiocese has kind of caught our attention because it was really quite, um, quite striking how many parishes could close. But they've begun this process, which could close up to seventy percent of their parishes.
1: Yeah, it's it's going to be something. I mean, one of the things that I didn't realize uh, until I was reading this report uh, is the is the disparity in American diocese or between American diocese, I should say, between number of parishes and number of Catholics in the diocese, and even that you know sort of. That can actually hold steady over time. So, for example, Cincinnati is something of an outlier in the sense in that they have more than 200 parishes for fewer than half a million Catholics. And that this, you know, this is a, a big sort of weird outlier statistically. It's got basically as many parishes as does the archdiocese of like Newark and Detroit. And the diocese of Brooklyn, which,
0: which, are like, which are like three, basically three times its size in terms of right, they've all population. got like a million yeah. and a half Catholics. Yeah.
1: So so there's that but you know I when I read that I sort of thought well clearly Cincinnati used to just be huge and like they've had a demographic collapse but it doesn't look like that's the case like they've always had this outsized balance of parishes to catholics relative to other dioceses and of course this is something that's very normal in some places that have had waves of mass catholic immigration cities like chicago Um, places like that where you have ethnic parishes. I know Cincinnati's had a lot of that where you get waves of, you know, the Irish build their church, the Polish build their church, the Germans build their church, the Lithuanians, you know, all this stuff. So there's that which can kind of sort of create overlapping footprints. Um, So what we did in the piece, I forgot to say what we did in the piece, and that's on me. What, What we did in the piece was to basically
0: look at the demographic realities of the Archdiocese of Cincinnati and then how they relate to demographic realities in the rest of the country in order to sort of ask the question, is this dramatic potential contraction of parishes specific to Cincinnati? Or is it, uh, does it share things in common with many other parts of the rest of the country?
1: Yeah, and I think the answer very much is, um, yeah, this both. is where go with Cincinnati, the rest of the country appears to be go with.
0: Well, it seems to me both, right? Because Cincinnati is an outlier in the way that you just mentioned that um, it has always had sort of more parishes per Catholic than many other places. Uh, you know, it's, it had the same number of parishes as Newark and Brooklyn, as you talked about, even with, with a third of the number of Catholics. And the reason for that is, um there are a few interesting reasons for that right so um that it has um been both a place with two cities of you know significant size but also a, a lot of rural area and um a, at a time when a lot of small rural villages each had their own parish because people didn't have cars so that was a factor that it had um, waves of ethnic immigrants who all had their own parishes kind of on top of each other. Then that had a lot of religious institutes in, in Seattle, excuse me, in Cincinnati. There were a number of religious orders in Cincinnati at various times who kind of put down stakes there as they moved westward. And so you had a number of churches that were administered by religious institutes that over time became parishes as well. So all these factors are kind of Cincinnati factors that have some bearing on other places. But then there are other things that are very much in common with, with, other, part, with, with other dioceses in that part of the country and even beyond.
1: Yeah and I think at least if I've understood the the data in its presentation correctly and you and Brendan are both smarter about this than me is that these sort of special Cincinnati factors have just made it a much more sensitive and predictive needle than the rest mm-hmm. that you know right. it, it what happens in Cincinnati appears to be a good predictor of what will happen in other places in the United States it's just because it has these sort of Cincinnati factors of you know A higher, or I should say, a lower ratio of parishes to Catholics compared to other dioceses and stuff. It just makes it more sensitive and more of a predictive outlier than um, being a sort of bad predictor. Yeah, does that make sense?
0: It does. So there are a lot of things that Cincinnati has in common with with a lot of uh, northeast and I don't know
1: what you would call Ohio. uh, You know, I mean, like it's the Midwest. Look, let's just settle this right now, because there's a lot of nonsense that's talked about where's the Midwest. The Midwest mm-hmm. is the part of the country which sits between the Appalachian Mountains and the Mississippi River. So that's you, the Midwest. So do you think
0: Kentucky is in the Midwest? No, but that's
1: below the Mason-Dixon line. Right. Uh,
0: I don't know where the Mason-Dixon line is, but the thing is, Cincinnati is, there is a walking bridge between Cincinnati and Kentucky. So that walking bridge is the is the line between the Midwest and something you might call the South? Yeah. Okay, I, I I don't know, I, I don't know. It seems to me that Indiana and Illinois and
1: Missouri and Wisconsin are demonstrably the Midwest. I don't know about o- Ohio. Well, is Illinois is... and Indiana are definitely the Midwest. I would mm-hmm. Missouri and Iowa. I think you could make a case, although you're kind of getting into the plains there. And... Okay, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, Ohio. See, the thing about Ohio that I, that I find interesting is that
0: Ohio really is kind of a microcosm of the entire United States in in various ways, and that includes the fact that it has. Um, it encompassed within Ohio are many of the cultures that are that are existent in, in the in, across the United States. So I'm sort of willing to give Ohio to let Ohio be its own thing to say Ohio and the Midwest. OK, but well what's your favorite city in Ohio? Uh, Columbus. Really? You thought I was going to say Steubenville?
1: No, I, it didn't occur to me <laughs> that you would say Steubenville. I didn't. <laughs> I, and I'm not being snarky here. I, I just I didn't consider Steubenville a city. Is it a city? Properly oh, speaking? I, it was a it college is, town. I mean, It is. I, a, it is probably um, politically a city, but yeah.
0: Okay, interesting. You were surprised by Columbus, though.
1: Yeah, I, I I thought you'd. I thought you might say Cincinnati. I thought you might say Cleveland. I, I think Toledo is probably my favorite city in the state yeah. of Ohio. Columbus is awesome, and
0: I wish that you understood that. But that's neither here nor there. I'm not. Um, I'm not slighting Columbus. I'm just saying. Well, okay.
1: Toledo's got a spot in my heart, that's all.
0: So Cincinnati is interesting for our purposes because while it has some unique factors, it also has a lot of things in common with the rest of the country, with the rest of Ohio and the Midwest, with with, um, sort of a lot of cities in the the Northeast. Uh, Its average age, like the median age of Cincinnati, is the same, identical to the median age of the United States. A lot of the sort of age demographic breakdowns of Cincinnati are identical to the United States. And um, Cincinnati has seen... Um, similar to other cities in Ohio, other cities in what could be called the Rust Belt, other cities in the, the Northeast, has seen, like, this dramatic population decline um, as America sort of moves to the South and to the West. So we can see, as we broke down sort of the data, we could see, okay, um, yeah, Cincinnati's closures are probably mostly correspondent to um, to closures in other places. Um, but there is one factor that actually didn't make it into an, our article, and someone mentioned it to me after that I, I just find fascinating. And it's this. Um, Cincinnati has one of the lowest um, immigrant populations of the country. Um, as a city, it's just a city with a, with, with far fewer immigrants contemporarily than, than nearly any other place, and with a, with a relatively low population of Hispanics who are even, you know, second-generation Americans or something like that. And so a factor that is impacting the church in many other places, namely the growing presence of Hispanic Catholics in many parts of the, the church, is just not... A factor in Cincinnati in the same way, which is kind of an anomaly in
1: terms of what will the church look like 20 years from now. Hmm. That, that's probably true. Um, and I mean, one of the things that I think came out of this, this report that I think is, is usually ignored when talking about sort of institutional footprint change for Catholic diocese in the United States um, is everybody tends to focus on, you know, a few big headline figures that we can all get our heads around, like general population decline or increase, mm-hmm. um, increased numbers of baptisms versus funerals, for example, you know, things like that are, you know, easy ways to take the temperature of the growth or stability of the Catholic population of a place. But what I think um, was interesting in what part of the section of this report that um, I, I found most fascinating was we often don't do much to account for internal movement uh, either right. within dioceses themselves mm-hmm. or within the country as a whole. Yep. And so you've seen, and you know, we talk a lot about dioceses like Brooklyn, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh um, that have been hemorrhaging Catholics and closing churches and all of these these things. And it's been part of a sort of you know general trend of population moving out of cities like that. But then places like Atlanta. Um, cities in texas places like phoenix um they're growing you know yeah the the, popula- the catholic population is growing and some of that is direct immigration from outside of the country but a lot of it is internal immigration right of people just getting up and moving and the same holds true in dioceses. and i think this is one of the interesting things that the cincinnati i mean i don't want to call it an experiment because it's not an experiment it's something they're doing and they're doing it because you know they have to account for the cincinnati certain, project let's say the cincinnati project um is they have all of these parishes, and again, they have a sort of outsized number of parishes per capita compared to other dioceses. But one of the things, and you mentioned this earlier, was, you know, okay, so a lot of this is down to rural parts of the diocese where there are parish churches, you know, that sort of predate the availability of automobiles, mm-hmm. things like that, which explain the sort of historical proximity to otherwise very small rural communities of churches like that. So those will probably, you know, there'll be a confederation and, you know, they'll turn into mission churches or, you know, separate campuses of one larger parish, at least to begin with. Um, but what I think is interesting is that you also get this phenomena of parish shopping. Mm-hmm. even within um not even just in sort of downtown areas but even in sort of exurban or suburban areas that people go to different parishes and sometimes it's because father gives nice homily sometimes it's because it's got a magnet school sometimes it's or because historical you
0: know, reasons that you already knew people there and it's not the first time yeah. you lived in that city
1: yeah. Yeah. exactly um and that part of um how dioceses need to sort of respond and, and adjust their parochial footprint is to account for the fact that, okay, while well, a lot of parishes might be quote, you know shrinking or quote-unquote dying on paper, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because there are no Catholics left in the diocese. It could just be because a lot of them are just going up the road to another place, and there's another parish that just can't fit them in on a Sunday or couldn't fit them in before the pandemic closed churches and people didn't go to Mass for a year and a half. Right. So I, I found that very interesting, that the internal displacement factor is something that doesn't get talked about a lot. When talking about parish reorderings and, and um, diocesan restructuring, that we tend to focus just on the sort of raw demographic needles of you know number of baptisms, population growth, number of Catholic funerals, effectively, um, and we and we don't look at well how are people moving around within all of this because yeah. that can that can lead to some interesting changes. Like I I don't know if this is still true but i think the fastest growing diocese at least it was for a number of years recently the fastest growing diocese in this country by capita by new church buildings by parishes is las vegas it's one of the top yeah it is one of the top i i think that
0: i don't think it's still um i don't think it's still on the top but it has been yeah
1: yeah mm-hmm. and i mean that's it's counterintuitive you don't think of it as a city that's growing you know you know if you ask people what are the major metropolitan centers of Catholicism in the United States are just major metropolitan centers in the country. People will say New York, Chicago, LA, you know, Atlanta, Houston. Nobody says Las Vegas. Yeah. But yet it's, you know, it's got a big service industry. There are a lot of people who are moving there to find work and it's got, it's got all of that. And and then even just within dioceses, that transition of
0: people moving within dioceses and the way that affects parishes, you know, I I was thinking about um, when I was, uh, when I worked, here for the Archdiocese of Denver um, many moons ago, when I was, I think I was Chancellor of the Archdiocese of Denver when we were talking about this, um, we we were talking a lot about sort of parish transition and the way in which just, um, what what we then were sort of calling like the I-25 corridor. So the way in which um, area between Denver and Fort Collins to the north of Denver was kind of filling up. And there was talk about, is there sort of, are, are new parishes needed there? And what ended up happening for the most part is, Rather than new parishes being developed there, um, in in kind of the north end of what was what was then the north end of the Denver metro area, is these places that had been small town parishes just became bigger and bigger and bigger until they were you know large suburban parishes with which needed much bigger parking lots and things like that. They went they effectively transitioned from being rural parishes to suburban parishes as other as, as other parishes and and many of them um, urban parishes
1: were you know increasingly empty. Yeah, I, that I mean that makes sense, and I think that's kind of going to be part of the pattern of how um, we see dioceses adjusting themselves across the country, that the, the sort of urban density of Catholic life, because, I mean, Catholicism was for, I think I'm right in saying this. I'm, this is going to come across as a generalization, but I'm like 95% confident I can defend it if I had to. Um, Catholicism was primarily an urban phenomenon, an urban cultural reality in this country for a very long time, that, you know, Catholicism is a major sort of demographic footprint came to major immigration centers, cities, usually port cities. Um, And it didn't travel West all that quickly? Question mark? I I would push back on that. I
0: I would push back on that. Catholicism has been, uh, in many ways, you know, the story of the expansion of Catholicism in America is the story of the expansion of immigrants in America. But, you know, many of the people who farmed the plains um, Mm -hmm. were, were Catholic people from... Uh, from Germany, from uh, Eastern Europe, um, and they brought with them their Catholicism and built parishes and then often brought religious orders. So if you think about a place like Iowa, I mean, Iowa is a fascinating place because um, as Iowa was farmed, the immigrants or first-generation Americans, but often immigrants who, who went to Iowa to farm were Catholic and they brought benedictines right and so and so there was this period of time where like all of iowa catholicism or most of iowa catholicism was benedictine catholicism to the point where the archdiocese of dubuque not still but for a long time the archdiocese of dubuque was effectively coterminous with a benedictine monastery you know what i mean it, it, right, the bishop was it, it's mm-hmm. interesting
1: you said but that sort of was the point i was driving towards making was the institutional church didn't necessarily travel west with the people um that they ended up bringing priests from the old country or religious orders a lot of the time with them that The yeah, diocesan right. footprint didn't follow well the
0: diocesan footprint in a lot of places came after so we've right. talked about this before in terms of parish incorporation, but what what happened in a lot of places is is as the country was settled, churches preceded a diocese you know authority right so I mean they mm-hmm. were out kind of beyond the you know beyond the law if you will they were parishes or or chapels or praetor leggi if you will um because the dioceses just had like near limitless or sort of western borders and um and the and the, the, they got settled by catholics but with uh without sort of the office of pastoral planning deciding where a parish needed to go so much as the people
1: building a church in in their vill- right. you know in their village right and so but i think what we're going to see is in the same way that it, as catholicism more slowly and organically moved west with communities sort of you know saying we exist here's a need something's got to come up here, whether they brought it themselves or you know built a church and then attracted a priest or a religious order or whatever it was. Yeah. I think we're going to see more and more of that as we see these internal demographic shifts, whereas the, the urban centers of historical American Catholicism are the ones where we're seeing the sharpest decline because you can still have a, a reasonable number of Catholics by square mile in, say, downtown Chicago, but you no longer need three churches on sort of opposite corners of the of a an intersection because you no longer need a German Lithuanian and a Polish church yeah in that area if that makes sense it, it does make sense I
0: think it's true um, I think what you're saying is true but it did not strike me as sort of the biggest factor to take away from the sort of data that we dove into with the Cincinnati story the thing that struck me most um, which I I think I knew intellectually but you know, just to see it was really striking is that we did some, we just graphed the number of baptisms in the United States uh, year over year. And, um, and you can see um, from a peak, like in the late nine. Oh, okay. So we started with, with the sixties, cause that's the earliest that we had data. But so, you know, in the, in 1960, you had um, 1. 1.3 million baptisms in the United States and a decline, which kind of corresponds to the, to the tail end of the baby boom, a decline you know, subsequent to that, um, kind of dropping down below a million by 1975, but then a, a gradual sort of move upward so that through the 80s and 90s, you, you see baptisms kind of moving up again, again, Catholic baptisms, so that in 1995, you have a million Catholic baptisms, and then a rather sharp decline from 1995 to now in terms of the number of baptisms ha- t- taking place annually, so that in 1995, there were a million Catholic baptisms in the United States, and by 2020,
1: there are just. I over. think it was even more pronounced because wasn't it 2000? Um, Hang on, let me get the let oh, me get the right, thing yeah, in front of t- me. Yeah, yes, you're right. Yeah, Two thousand was the Two thousand, yeah, <laughs> and then
0: by 2020, you know, down, you know, at about 550 thousand. So you just see this sharp decline. And and if there's a takeaway for me, it's the the profound significance of um, sort of institutional disaffiliation that leads to half as many baptisms in 2020 as there were in in 2000.
1: Yeah. Well, and we it's not that we haven't had um, several very unfortunate and very public and very protracted uh, events, which you might call proximate causes for institutional disaffiliation. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the data on that is. is. I want to find out what the reasons are that
0: people give for not practicing the faith. I mean, what is manifestly true is that um well,
1: but there's not practicing the faith and there's not, baptizing, not baptizing your, your children. children right yeah i think that's true in fact because not going I, to church on sunday is one thing but usually even you know very very loosely affiliated cultural catholics still hold to the big 3 you want to be there for you want your kids baptized you want to get married in a church and you want a funeral
0: yeah I think, and i think that's true um i i read a uh, i read a statistic yesterday you might have read it too that said that people born in the 1950s which we think of this sort of house on day of you know era of catholicism um, for people born in the nineteen fifties, only about thirty-three percent of them who were raised Catholic, you know, still still go to mass. And um and that's not much different from people who were born in the nineteen nineties. Twenty six percent of them who were raised Catholic go to mass. So um there's a drop off like among all generations, but what's different is that there was a higher percentage of people who didn't go to mass at some point who were baptizing their their kids anyway, as you as you say, you know, who weren't regular mass goers. But but, um, but we're baptizing their kids anyway. But I, I do think we have to sort of appreciate the significance of that. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I think people talk about it, but I don't know the degree to which we appreciate the significance of sort of, dimin- you know, diminishing numbers. If, if you have even a steady number of Catholics who practice the faith, but just half as many Catholics, you know, by, by baptism, um, the, the profundity of that is, is significant. And I, I don't think that it's true that you will have consistently— a steady number of catholics who who practice the faith as a as a percentage of catholics on the whole.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, part of this I think is possibly attributable just to dropped in for drop fertility. Right. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. people yeah, are just totally. not having as many kids. Yeah, totally. Which stinks, but I mean, the the real I mean, it, it's not just a demographic concern, it's not just a sort of numbers thing, but you know, when you look at you know, this and again, we this is charted in the in the piece. Um, the decline in baptisms, in terms of raw numbers, in the United States between 2000 and 2020. I mean, this is not this is not attributable to uh, you know a, a percentage point or two's decline in general fertility. This is there are children being born who are not being baptized who would have been in the window of 20 years previous, and that's um, that's a sacramental reality. That's an existential reality for these children. I mean. Um, you know, baptism isn't just about, you know, you get your Catholic passport and you get to, you know, be a card care, you know, you get to one day say, well, I was raised a Catholic. And so I have utterly ignorant views on the church. You know, there's, it's not just about that. It's, you know, that there is sacramental, um, sacramental baptism imparts a character. Um, it's necessary for salvation. We, we, you know, th- this is, an or, this is not just a sort of demographic cliff face in terms of, a a management or organizational, uh. Viewpoint. No, not at all. Yeah, this is you know this is a crisis of souls.
0: Yeah, I, I want to talk about that, but I, first I'm glad you brought up fertility because um, that is a big part of the story. So in 1960, when we we're talking about baptisms at uh, what, what I can't remember the number now, but in, in when we were talking about significantly more baptisms than than there are now. The birth rate was uh, I just looked it up 3.65 births per woman in the United States. In 2021, the birth rate was 1.78 births per woman in the United States. So that's, from 3.65 to 1.78 is a big drop and um, it, it is indeed a factor in, in what we're talking about and a significant one. Um, but in any case, the, the the broader point is the point that you make, which is that a declining number of baptisms, a declining number of weddings, a declining number of people who attend Mass on Sundays, all of those things point to a new reality um for the church from a management and administration standpoint, i.e. how many buildings do we have and those kinds of things. But those questions have to be judged, I think, in the context of the mission of the church. And And here's what I mean. Often I think there is a desire um, if a parish that in which you grew up is closing or um, if the church talks about having to, you know, close parishes and sell them and these kinds of things, there's a desire like to hang on to what was and that desire can um can be i mean it's very natural it's it's of course it's completely natural and there's a good to wanting to preserve like the historic you know the historic beauty of the church and things which people sacrifice to build and these kinds of things and at the same time um it is also true that those things can become you can become in the business of keeping up buildings instead of um reducing sort of what the institutional footprint is because the mission of the church is not to maintain. X number of buildings, it's it's to proclaim the gospel. And uh and those things can become can be in, in, in conflict with
1: each other. Very much so. Um it, it, I, I think it to agree, I mean we've talked about this in other contexts before too, I think in relation to Catholic schools and um and, and other things related to sort of the general um mechanics of chancery life which is, this is, the, this is the problem, is if you're running a diocese, not just at the level of the diocese bishop, but if you're working in a chancery, um, you have to have an eye on the sort of general trends and the general numbers. You have to, you know, I don't want to say have an eye on sort of, you know, the greatest, the best possible outcome for the highest number of people or whatever, something, you know, technocratic and mechanistic like that. But you have to have some kind of eye for, well, we need to do the best we can here with what we have. But at the same time, you know there are there are no statistics in the church. Every every soul matters. Right. That you know that and and how you balance the tension between the sort of universal pastoral urgency and the, the pragmatic realities of running an institution are phenomenally difficult. I mean it's it, it, it's in many ways a circle that uh, a square that can't be a circle that can't be squared, um, and it's just very very hard. Which is why I think the the sort of Cincinnati project is so interesting and so necessary that you know we look hard at it and look at what's causing it and keep an eye on how it plays out because we want to see for sure um what works here we want to see um you know if there's best practice that can be taken from this and used by other dioceses in the u.s that would be great um you know it I, I hope that there are no mistakes made. I hope nobody slips through the cracks, but I mean, it's, it's a human plan doing the best people can. I'm sure there will be some things yeah. that, mm-hmm. you know, could be improved along the way. And so if there are lessons to be learned, we want to, you know, catch those in as real time as possible, not with a view to being critical, but in a view to, you know, this is this is about helping the church um, reorder itself in the, in the most effective way for dealing with the pastoral realities that it's in in the United States. And so I think, you know, the whole thing is just phenomenally important that way.
0: Yeah, I, I I think that's right. The, the, the disposition, uh, the dispositional questions I think are the most important. Um, uh, is the moment of transition that the data portends and the data portends a serious moment of transition is the moment of transition that the data portends going to be looked at. Um, will we, I mean, it's not a question of other people. Will we look at the moment of transition portended by the data as an administrative necessity, um, or as an opportunity to, um, imagine what it is to be the church in an increasingly secularized context.
1: Right. And well I mean what and, we need for that. And in many ways what this is going to involve, I think, in addition to accommodating demographic change within diocesan footprints, you know, parishes closing and shrinking, other parishes growing, and all stuff. But it's also I mean, we're moving from a cultural reality where you could count on the people to come to church. Right. Mm-hmm. That was that was the expectation was that people were culturally enough Catholic that they're always going to turn up to mass on sunday yeah and it's you know fundamentally what you're asking is well how can we best use their time and attention and help them when they show up at our door but you know we're we're reverting to you know and i I think what a lot of whenever whenever i hear someone say we're reverting you know america or europe is reverting to missionary territory it's always said it's like some sort of great defeat but it's like you know what a missionary footing is the church's natural orientation. Right, exactly. That's, that's not like, I, I don't hear, when I, when I say that, you know, we've got a, the church in the United States institution needs to start thinking in a more um, evangelizing. I, I suppose evangelical would be the appropriate word, but that's yeah. that has other connotations. And so I don't want to, disting, to distinguish from evangelicalism. Um, a, an evangelizing mentality, a mentality that is what Pope Francis would say, outward facing Going, you know, in, in in many places, I think now the peripheries are bigger than the, than the centers. Um, but a, a diocesan model that is very much um, geared towards evangelization, I mm-hmm. think, is very very important. And I think what you're saying is exactly right, which is it's a question of well, what are we going to um, sort of steer into the swerve here and say this is what's coming and this is the opportunity it presents to reevaluate how it is we do the structures and things that we do as a church with the great mandate in mind, or are we just going to sort of bite our teeth and make the changes sort of either a little bit at a time as we are absolutely forced to, or, you know, a sort of catastrophic break of, you know, well, it's all, you know, we've lost it all. So it's just, you know, try and hold on to what we can. Um, And I think you're right. I think having a, a mentality of, I don't want to say opportunity, but an openness to the spiritual reality of the church as being fundamentally called to evangelize at all times and all places. I think if that is what ends up the these sorts of diocesan reorderings, I think it can be a positive experience.
0: Yeah, I I see it as, I think, I was thinking about it as you were talking about, I was listening to you, but I was also trying <laughs> I maybe this is what you're trying to say too, I don't know. Is that your way of saying
1: I'm sleep deprived and being completely incoherent? No,
0: I don't think you are, but because that's fair. If you <laughs> no, I don't think you are. I don't think you still are. But the um, the data which we have looked at, which shows fewer baptisms, fewer people practicing the faith, fewer—I uh, think probably fewer people as a percent as a portion of Catholics practicing the faith. These kinds of things, uh, among other things, I think can be seen as a call to conversion. You know, I saw somebody say in response to, uh, I was posting this story on Twitter yesterday, like, well, this is uh, God chastising us. I, I don't think I see it that way, but I do think that it can be seen as a call to conversion and a, and a dispositional correction for all of us as Catholics. Um, in that, I think there has been a way in which um, there is a there has been a sort of perception that Being Catholic can be an accessory element of our identity or an accidental element of our identity, and the church will sort of carry on and be the place where we go for things called community and for rites of passage at various points in our life, and because we need to have some sort of ritualistic thing to do with people who die, and because we need a a sage figure who can give us sort of words of wisdom at moments of difficulty, and the church can be that thing. So the church is sort of divorced from the content of the gospel and becomes instead fulfills instead certain sociological and psychological needs um and there's a way in which that attitude can creep in um and i think probably has crept into had crept into american culture for for decades and decades the idea that i can be fundamentally the same as everyone else and this is the place where i go to fulfill certain needs um is a danger and the when i say a call to conversion it's a call to conversion to a sense that being um be, that it's not just as francis says the church is a mission and the church is always on mission, but that means that the the orientation of my life is missionary. And uh when I talk like this, people I think often say, that sounds good in the and you know, that's like fine in abstraction, but what does it mean? And truthfully, I, I, I think I've said this before, I hope I've I don't think I even know. You know what I mean? I don't think I even know what it means to be um to, to principally identify my Catholicity as missionary, being sort of on mission. Um on behalf of the gospel, um, and I don't think institutionally we can we can yet sort of even say this is what we think that means for all of the Catholics, right? Um, for most of us, this is what that means in a sort of practical way. But um, if that's not the what John Paul II calls a new evangelization, or Francis calls missionary discipleship, I mean, hell, Ed, I don't I don't know what is. Even though I I think um, it's one step in front of another of just sort of beginning to say. Um, how better do we identify ourselves as sanctifying the world rather than receiving certain sociological and psychological needs inside the church
1: no i I think it part of it is you know you say you're not even sure what it what it looks like to have um, a fundamentally missionary understanding of of our catholicism i think it's when you i think it's two things and First of all, it's what you say about you know this sort of sociological mentality that enters into the practice of the faith, which is you know the church is the place where I go where I do these things, and everyone does these things. They just do them in different places. In some places they have you know shamrocks, and in some other places they have you know Octoberfest. Yeah, some and of
0: you, the or some of the crosses have um, have corpuses, and some of them don't because you're Protestant, you know. But yeah, exactly. fundamentally, but
1: sort of like religion is the place
0: where we go to get our our sociological needs met and to mark our passages of time right
1: so the the first thing is do you, do you primarily view the faith as a cultural marker you know the sort of lapel pin you wear while wearing the same clothes as everyone else existentially if you like um or is it a fundamental part of your identity but i think the other thing is um it's important you know is being catholic for uh, this is how i try to think about it And i'm sure some Theologians can say, oh, well, you could misinterpret that, and that's bad. And, and it's like, but you know what, I'm fine with it. Um, I, I think fundamentally being Catholic, being a Christian is a mission. And so do you understand Catholicism? Do you understand your membership of the church? Do you understand um, the practice of the faith as something uh, that you are or something that you have to do? Is it a fundamental orientation of every daily interaction? You know, you say, what does it look like to have a missionary concept of daily Catholicism? I think part of it is like, well, are you, do you have an answer to the fundamental question, well, why, why are you Catholic? You know, do you have an answer ready for that? Do you, are you prepared to discuss the faith with someone? At any right, point but even in that, day.
0: that's where I push back, because you were saying before, oh, we have to change the mentality of the parishes to to stop thinking, if you build it, they will come, and people come to the parish, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and I think, no, no, I mean, that's not sufficient for the parish to say, oh, we've put up this thing, and people will come to it, because people aren't coming to it, right? So the parish needs to say, how do we sort of invite people to hear the charygma, right? And in the same way, I think we have often, the spirituality of, the Lake spirituality in the United States is often reduced to, be prepared to tell someone at the fa- about the faith at work if someone asks you about the faith at work, right? That's your missionary apostle. Like, be a good be a good husband, be a good father, and sort of be prepared to answer a Catholic question if someone has one. And like that it, it seems to me to be a, a kind of just inaction, right? I mean, oh, St. Paul says rightly, always be prepared to, you know, say the reason for the hope that you have. But um, am I proactive in expressing that? Um, yeah, I don't think it's just like, to like, are you to be-
1: prepared to talk about it at any moment of the day?
0: Right, right. Am I and 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 then am I thinking? If I'm thinking the faith is a mission, am I thinking uh, this thing which gives meaning and order to my life and is the and is the sacrament of salvation um, is the thing which I ought to be thinking about um, how I can invite other people to in, encounter um, and hear and um, you know that means I mean like you know that means different things. This is why I think ecclesial movements are so fascinating because it seems to me that ecclesial movements may be the only place where people are like trying to answer that question and sometimes it seems really weird right so you know uh, there's sort of a trope among a, a lot of diocesan administrators i know that like you always know when it's when when it's time for the uh, the neocatechumen away mission because suddenly you get it showing up in the chancery a bunch of people who say like hey we are here in your diocese and we're just letting you know that we're going to knock on doors and invite people to mass and you're like but you don't even where's your paperwork what, what are you you know where's your uh Where's your sort of approval for that? And yet they get some smartest
1: answer, like we're baptized.
0: Yeah. They say like, well, we're baptized and this is our mission. And so then they go and do things like knock on the doors of people's houses and say, you know, we're going to have a thing tonight where we talk about Jesus and would you like to come? Or would you like to come and hear about the man who transformed my life? And that's like, that is, it seems to me, a proactive kind of missionary activity. And then, you know, I find that so many places where I go... Um, people who are associated with the Ecclesial Movement Communion and Liberation are saying to me, like, hey, we have this uh, thing kind of for our friends, and it's kind of this cultural thing called Communion and Liberation. And we read from this book from this man named Luigi Giussani, and do you want to come? And I'm like, well, okay, that's sort of interesting. And I go, and then they do their thing, which I don't really understand. But the point is they, like, have been proactive about saying there's a person to whom we will invite into our, our Christian communion with the expectation that he will experience conversion. And when I say I don't know what it looks like, what I mean is most of us are not equipped in any meaningful way to say there is a part of my life in which I invite other people to hear the gospel with an expectation that they will hear conversion because it's not like our parishes are regularly having, um, someone it's not like there's a, even a thing that I would know to bring people to where, oh, every Tuesday night someone in the parish is, um... Pro- preaching christ crucified for people who have never heard it before right i can invite someone to mass and i ha- i can invite someone to mass i can invite someone to adoration i can sort of have a friendship with someone that over time but if i want to say okay this is the moment where this person who is mostly unchurched here's the gospel of jesus christ in the in the church which he founded i'm not sure that we're doing that in a sort of systematic intentional ongoing and consistent way apart from ecclesial movements
1: i think that's probably true i right? um I could invite him to the Paris festival and it'd be great. But I, you know. I remember, uh, as a Canon law student, I went to an event. In fact, I think it was a possibly a book launch by a cardinal, um, mm-hmm. who I will not name and shame, but, uh, he was, he was talking about how he had, he was getting on a plane to Rome and someone sat next to him and noticed that he was a priest and, you know, started asking him questions about the faith and everything. And, and he was sort of, uh, doing all that and he sort of relayed this as you know this is fundamentally what um what it means to be available as a christian to be salt light and leaven in the world is to you know to be someone who is visibly christian and a sign that attracts uh, it provokes a question um and the question i asked him afterwards during the q a uh which i i think kind of stumped him a little bit and it's for this reason i'm not naming and shaming him was i said well okay but What do you do with them once once you've done that? Once you've had the you know the initial encounter, you've you know got them on the hook, so to speak. Right. (laughs) Where where do you bring them? I said because they can't all sit next to you on a plane. Uh, You know what what are we supposed to do with them in the ordinary parish life? Bring them to Sunday mass? That's not a you know that mass is the source and summit of Christian life. Sure, but it's not a catechetical program. Um, And I think a lot of I think what you're saying is true that you know, parishes have RCIA courses. But the presumption but of RCIA is often that you already want to join. Exactly. That's exactly what I was about to say. The presumption of RCIA is the person who's coming saying, I would like to be Catholic. Please do the Catholic thing to me. Probably because my girlfriend is Catholic and I, I want to get married in the Catholic church. And I want to get married in the church. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Or what she wants us to have... be the same religion. Yeah. So, what we so, don't what have is do? the sort of curb appeal mentality. It's, it's what people, And I think this is the... I, so I, this is the
0: paradigm shift. This is a serious paradigm shift yes. that if we look at those numbers, we have to say, and that I have been working in and around the church my entire adult life and say, I can think of pockets of places where someone would know how to invite someone, but never as a Catholic in the pew has, a, has my pastor said, hey, this is this is what our parish is doing to like invite people to hear the story of the kerygma, and this is your job in it, and this is my job in it, and let's go. That's what I'm talking about,
1: and we're right. not there at all. Well, we're not there at all. And I think the reason that we're not there at all is we're still operating from the presumption that uh, people want religion for the sociological reasons that you talked about earlier. Right. And so a lot of the sort of programmatic life of the church is geared towards, well, this is why this is the right religion to choose. You know, The presumption is that you're in the market for this, mm-hmm. and we're going to give you our product, which is... Admittedly, the Rolls Royce—it's the only one you want. It's the, yeah. this is the best one. But no, we do have the best product. It's just that we're not but, selling it. Well, the, the thing is, you have where we are now culturally is it's not a question of convincing people that you have the best product. You have to convince them of the need for the product in the first place. We're right, not exactly. at the point where we're saying we've got the Rolls Royce; everyone else is driving a Ford. You have to convince people that they want a car, right? And and I think that's what we don't have as part of the daily reality of parish life is that. And this is what I think it, we really need it, when we're talking about. Parishes that are outward facing, parishes that go to the peripheries, whatever the peripheries are. Yeah, yeah. Um, is it's not about saying uh, we need to attract people into being Catholic. It, it is understanding w- and articulating for them what is the question at the heart of the lives of people right. who right. are, are, who would like to hear the good news, people who need to hear the charisma. What right. is the question, the possibly unarticulated question in their life? And that is, I think, needs to be the focus. That that is the true, I think, first focus of evangelization is saying we have to understand what is lacking mm-hmm. in order to articulate why Christ is the answer.
0: Yeah, yeah. I that that is really well said, and it's really important. And it's it's I, I, the reason why we're talking about this now is because I think this moment of looking at half as many baptisms in 2020 as there were in 2000 needs to be a sobering point at which we say no that's that that is what it means to be the mission of the church and to sort of just be the place where people who are already there and yeah a few people experience conversions along the way and some people will read their way into the catholic church and these kinds of things but you know like it gets a lot of guff it gets a lot of guff and maybe some of the guff is deserved i don't know i don't know it well enough but focus right the thing which does the thing on college campuses effectively takes young people and equips them to invite other young people to come to a Bible study and not just kids who are already Catholic, but any kid who's there, right? And the Bible study, I don't know how much Bible study they're doing or how much just they're inviting them into a Christian community, but then they're modeled in in a Christian community. And in some way, the gospel is presented to them. Whatever criticism it takes for not doing it the way that other people think it should do or not forming the missionaries the way that they think, that is an invitation to come and, um, see this man who has said everything about my life. That That is it in concrete. And for most of our Catholic institutions, it is foreign to the things that we think about. There's no focus type thing um, at my parish, which is saying, and I'm not picking on my parish because my parish is great. If you want to raise your children in the faith and you love the Lord and want to hear the truth preached and have adoration and other cool things, it's the place to go. But At no point has any pastor I've ever had said to me, and this is the point that I'm making, and I'm not putting it on my pastor either because I don't think his bishop has said it to him. This is a total paradigm shift. At no point has has the church said to me or is the church saying, we're going to make a strategic plan by which we have a place to invite people and a mechanism by which we invite them. Um, even to propose the notion that and maybe it doesn't look very churchy at all if the first step of it is to propose the notion that there are questions to be asked beyond you know the stupidity of politics
1: and social media and these kinds of things so this is something you see a lot I think um, in or at least you used to see a lot in different regions of the United States where you get sort of like mall front pop up churches yeah yeah and the thing that always struck me about them was they were great at that. They were mm-hmm. great at the curb appeal of there is there is a question at the heart of your light, at the heart of your life that you are wrestling with, right. and that you don't have the answer to. Come in here, let us tell you what. First of all, let us articulate that question for you, and then we will tell you the answer. Mm-hmm. But what they don't have is the back end, because this we, is have ju- in,
0: we, we have an unpl- we have a depth that cannot be plumbed.
1: Of like truth in reality. Exactly. We've got the back end, but we've never, not never, no, but we don't the apostolic history of this, the church is exactly this, yeah, but what but we, we have we don't now in this context and culture and environment. ...have the shop front first point of contact. Right. And and I think it's there to be done. The problem, I think a lot of it is cultural squeamishness. I think a lot of it is down to, well, that's, that's not what we do. We're Catholics.
0: Yeah, oh, but I also think a lot of it is like not being, I, I'm not saying commissioned, but in a certain way, like commissioned for it i am I, not putting this on a class i'm not saying this is pastors are not equipping their people to do this i'm not saying bishops are not equipping their priests to, but we it's are just commissioned not, that's what fi, the baptism but, that, is that's my point is it's just not um, it's just not the way we even talk about the christian life we talk even when we talk about personal holiness we we talk about personal uh, how our personal holiness might be attractive to other people and in us about it and um, we don't talk about our personal holiness being predicated on our having the sense of being in mission
1: we are in, I mean, what is, why do we call it the Mass? Because we are sent from it. Exactly. Ite, mm-hmm. Missa est. The church is sent. But yes. That is, you know, the entire premise of our participation in the source and summit of Christian life in the Eucharist is that you go out because you've got work to do.
0: So when I but, say paradigm shift, this is what I mean, like the sense that all of us are sort of on mission and then a game plan for the mission. And I realize this is kind of not what I thought we'd talk about today, but this is, you know, the... Why are parishes closing in the Archdiocese of Cincinnati? Why do we say the Archdiocese of Cincinnati is a microcosm for the United States? Why will we see a mass sort of contraction of the footprint of the church um, in many, many places? Um, because I think we have largely had the sense of um, the church as a place to provide for some psychological, sociological, and religious needs of people who are getting the faith in their families and then coming as families to get the sacraments and some other
1: stuff in the building it's a it's a religious consumer mentality yes precisely Mm -hmm. yeah it is about the churches where i go to be fed which for sure is what we do but it's the idea that my job is i go there and i get something that's the extent it's not you know that we've again we've we've got the back end right we we alone have the true back end if you like of of this sort of religious question but what we aren't doing is the 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 front facing part. Which is, you he, take that and you go out. Here's
0: another example. Here's another example. I don't. I did not count them up, but if I count them up, I will find that from the U.S. Bishops Conference this week are many statements on political affairs. Uh, U.S. Bishops Migration Chairman welcomes refugee admissions target of 125,000. That's good, good. You know, um, and uh, uh, U.S. Bishops Pro Life Chairman on rescinding of Protect Life Rule. This is, this is something that the bishops should, you know, the, that's a, an issue, right? Um, U.S. Bishops pro Life Chairman responds to House vote on bill that imposes radical abortion on demand. Good, right? All of these things, all of these statements that I see coming from our bishops are fundamentally like make coming with the presumption that um, the faith isn't is an operative reality in many many people's lives, and therefore what the bishops say will be kind of um, a, a force for change and relevant. And I think the bishops have some. Uh, I, I do think the bishops like have some uh, street cred, as it were, on Capitol Hill, and are presumed to be representing Catholics. I, I, it's not that I think they're sort of not taken seriously in any room they go into, and but, even if
1: they aren't, they have a prophetic role,
0: right? They have a prophetic role. That's that's right. They do have a prophetic role, but they also have a um, they also have the the role, and I say this from the bishops on down to the Flynns, they also have the role of just like proclamation that um, Christ is the answer to the question posed by every human life. And that statement necessarily, the effectiveness of that statement necessarily precedes the effectiveness of bishops way in on mm-hmm. migration and refugee cap. Necessarily Absolutely. precedes. And I think in many, many ways, we are not caught up to the fact that we are in a place where charismatic proclamation cannot be assumed. Evangelization cannot be assumed. Catechesis cannot be assumed. But just like an initial conversion of heart for most people um, ought not be... Assumed, and if that's true, it it
1: underscores the primacy of the thing which the Lord says is primary. Right. Well, and this is, I think, part of the problem is, you know, what you were saying about um, assume someone has the desire to go out and bring someone into the church. They don't know what to bring them to. They don't know how to, you know, do that. There's something. I, can say. I, I think the the most um, this is something you and I were talking about. I think earlier this week, uh, not on a podcast. We do actually just sometimes talk. Um, but this is something that you and I were talking about this week, that I think the, the, the thing that makes a person go out and, and bear a charismatic witness to Christ, the thing that gives someone a truly evangelical mentality, the thing that makes someone take seriously their baptismal mandate to make disciples of all nations, is a profound conversion experience of their own. And that the question of what do you bring them to naturally answers itself if you've had a profound conversion experience, because you bring the people to the thing that helped you that's where it comes from, I think. So if you are in an ecclesiastical movement, you you bring people to that. If you somehow converted by an exposure to one particular form of the liturgy or another, you want to bring people to that. And I think the reason that we have a sort of mass absence of, you know, sort of mass confusion question at the heart of, well, how do we make the church uh, more missionary focused, more um, oriented towards evangelization is like, well, to to have a good news to announce, you have to have experienced it first. And how many of us are living our Catholicism in the light of a profound conversion experience of our own, of an encounter with Christ, that if you've had an encounter with Christ in your own life, in one way or another, and it doesn't have to be, some, I'm not talking necessarily about some sort of you know quasi-mystical spiritual a subjective
0: experience. A subjective, if you know, if you are graced to sort of know rationally and in the way that you live your life the meaning of your baptism which is to say that you are beloved by God and claimed by him and incorporated into the person of Christ that's an encounter with Christ.
1: Well exactly but it and it's what I was saying earlier about you know you have to have ready the answer to the question why are you catholic? You know the 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 true answer to the question why are you catholic is because I believe why do you believe? You know, do, What is your experience of faith? That if you have had a profound experience of faith, it is that much easier to announce it to someone else. And again, the, the what do you do next rather answers itself more often than not, because if you've had a profound experience of faith, that's what you want to bring people to. It, it can be, but I often think that systemically
0: we are set up so that when you have had a profound experience of faith, the next step is, so join, enter into this community of others who have had a profound experience of faith and, oh, maybe that community will somehow rub off on other people and they'll come too, right? I mean, I do think sort of like plunge more deeply into what can become a sort of self-referential um, com- I, I don't know. By the way, there is a document on this that all the things that we're saying are in this document, the pastoral conversion of the parish community and the service of the evangelization the mission of the church which came from the Congregation of clergy, for Clergy last summer. It came out in July 2020, so nobody was paying attention to it. I think I've talked about it on the show before, because it is effectively a blueprint for the transformation of the parish from one thing into another. It was not a great time. No, it was not a great time. <laughs> it, was, it was not a great people time. Were, people a, were concerned with other things to do with ordinary yeah, parish life. And, and the, it's a long kind of, you know, it's a sort of long kind of churchy document. But it is effectively, I mean, it it, it is effectively a blueprint which begins by saying the parish needs to be the thing which is um which is a center of missionary activity and these are some ways that you could kind of get started
1: yeah yeah
0: so i think that's cool i think it's critically important and i think the magnitude of the paradigm shift which is needed is um, cannot be underestimated. But what is genuinely needed is a, what is genuinely needed is a paradigm shift. And I am saying what I chuckle to myself because I am using the term paradigm shift, and that's a loaded thing in our co- context. But what is needed is indeed a paradigm shift, but a paradigm shift which is oriented towards um, the the recognition that many people have not, in any meaningful way, heard proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, with that said, a listener asked us a couple of weeks ago if and this is connected to Cincinnati as well. <laughs> a listener asked us a couple of weeks ago, um if we would actually talk about the canonical pro- <laughs> the canonical process for the suppression of a parish. I'm laughing because it's just like uh it's just like from the uh from uh from even to the paperwork, right? Um no, yeah. I'm laughing because it's like now it's like I got the paperwork. Because our listeners are asking us about this paperwork, but the paperwork matters, and and we know about it. So oh, a listener yes asked does. us, yes, yes, it does. A, a listener asked us if we would talk about the canonical process for the closure of a parish, because I, I think there's some confusion about how a parish, uh, how a parish is closed, and what that means. And uh, so, and I would like to in in response to because a, when a, a listener asked us that, a lot of people sort of weighed in and said like, yeah, yeah, would you talk about that? So there is clearly like desire for us to talk about how the canonical process for closing a parish and so um uh let's talk about it so to do that we need to go to the law and ed where do you think i want to start
1: um well you're probably going to want to start in book two mm-hmm. and talk about the nature of parishes i am that's right
0: canon was, 515
1: my friend all righty. you see i was already going to book seven I'm like oh let's get into some let's get into some good procedural law but okay yeah fine. book seven is for the removal of a pastor not only it's it's all procedural law in Book Seven, <laughs> but I, what, there what are I mean other is, things you can do with the law than just remove pastors. No, what I, JD, what you what I and mean bishops is, need to understand this. There are other <laughs> there are other purposes to what the I mean law is, I don't than think just getting seven outlines, out of the church.
0: I don't think that Book Seven outlines anything having to do with the closure of errors, does it? It
1: may not, but it has administrative recourse and things oh, like yeah, that. are okay. sure, sure. Okay,
0: what we, we've probably said this on the podcast a hundred and fifty times, but uh, Canon Five Fifteen Paragraph One. Um, a parish is a certain community of the Christian faithful, stably constituted in a particular church, whose pastoral care is entrusted to a parish as its proper pastor under the authority uh, uh, excuse me, whose pastoral care is entrusted to a pastor as its proper pastor under the authority of the diocesan bishop. A parish is a certain community of the Christian faithful stably constituted. I read that over and over. A parish is a certain community of the Christian faithful stably constituted because when we talk about um closing a parish, um, what, we're, what we're talking about is um, reconstituting, reorganizing the communities which it can exist in the context of the particular church. A parish is a community of the Christian faithful, which is defined by territory. Fundamentally, the parish is the people of God who are domiciled between Broad Street and South Avenue and, you know, between Myrtle and Hazel and all of the all of the Catholics contained therein. And closing a parish doesn't mean, like, eliminating those people. Um Hopefully. They don't don't go away. They don't go away. It means reconstituting the borders of all the other parishes or some other parishes so that that community of the Christian faithful is in some way appended, whether in whole or in part, into other communities
1: of the Christian faithful. Yeah, the the quote-unquote closing of a parish consists of basically the reordering of the juridic personality of that portion of
0: the Mm -hmm. people of God. Right, that's right. And it is the prerogative of the diocesan bishop to do that. So if the diocesan bishop says, You know, I have too many parishes in Eagleton, and um rather than having yeah, rather than having two parishes in Eagleton, I'm going to have one parish in Eagleton. I'm going to uh, I'm going to suppress one of the parishes. Um in order to do that, he is he needs to append the the community which exists on the west half of Eagleton into something else. So he says, Well, I'm going to uh I'm going I've I have two parishes in Eagleton. I'm going to suppress one of them and then all of the people in Eagleton will be part of the same parish. What does
1: he need to do in order to do that? Ed? Um well first of all he needs to show that it's in some way necessary. Yeah. Because juridic persons once erected are presumed to be permanent.
0: But let's just say he let's say he says uh, I don't have enough. I don't. I, I don't have enough priests. I don't foresee for the future that I'll have enough priests. Plus, the population of Eagleton is half what it once was. So, rather than having two parishes in Eagleton, I'm going to have one.
1: Right. Well, so there's. Well, you. You said suppress one, have them all day. I would wonder if, would it not be an extinctive merger? But yeah, um, but
0: but an extinctive merger, in my view, it, it's 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 essentially identical to
1: to uh, a suppression. Is it not? Is it? I don't know. Actually, is it not? Well, no, because in, when, if, if you're merging the two into one, you're creating an entirely new juridic person okay, as so opposed let's to one thing. You're right. Thank you. Let's
0: say, for sake of simplicity, I have three parishes in Eagleton, and the population of Eagleton is plummeting, and so the bishop says, I only need two parishes in Eagleton. So mm-hmm. I have three parishes in Eagleton, St. East, St. West, and St. Middle, and I'm going to suppress St. Middle— and when I suppress St. Middle, I'm going to redraw the lines of St. East and St. West so that each of them effectively absorbs half of St. Middle. Is that, mm-hmm. Does that make you happy? Yeah, that makes me happy. Okay, what does he need to do in order to do that?
1: Well, the first thing he needs to do is consult.
0: Mm-hmm. He does? Who does he have to consult with?
1: Uh, well, he's going to have to consult the College of Consulters of the
0: Diocese. Actually, by the law, Canon Five Fifteen Two, 2 he needs to consult the Presbyteral Council. Um, in order to suppress oh, a parish oh, rats. Yeah, sorry presbyteral council, suppress a parish, he needs Bad to hear me. the presbyteral council. So the only thing the bishop has to do if he says, I have three parishes in Eagleton. Formally the only thing the bishop has to do if he says I have three parishes in Eagleton and I want to have two parishes in Eagleton, so I'm going to suppress St. Middle and split the community down, down the middle um, is to he- ask the presbyteral Council if they think it's a good idea. What if they think it's a bad idea, Ed? Well, that's just, um, that's their opinion. That's their that opinion. All the bishop has to do is them what they think. Consultation means you, you right. have the obligation to hear them out. That's so it. So if he wants to suppress the parish of St. Middle, all he has to do is hear out
1: the presbyteral Council. But Ed, does that sound like a wise way for the bishop to proceed? Well, it's not a great way if all you're going to do is hear a a small body of persons and only their opinion, which you're not obliged to take. So, a, a usually, I mean, bear in mind that, as with everything, the supreme law of the church is the, what? It's
0: the salvation of souls, but Indeed. as soon as you so, say that, I start checking for my wallet because I feel like you're going to give me some, you're going to take something from me now.
1: No, 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 no. I was going to say, so the the souls in question here whose salvation the bishop should be preeminently concerned with are the people of the parishes involved. And so having some consultation with them, or at least and by consultation, yeah, hearing them and also informing them of the situation. And, you know, a lot of times um, people feel that their rights have not been respected, J.D., and this can trigger canonical recourse. Uh, so you have to take the temperature of everyone whose rights are involved and touched by the process. Mm-hmm. So in this case, if, for example, the church of Eagleton South.
0: Oh, no, I'm sorry. St. East, St. West, and St. Middle. I was I'm very sorry. clear with you Saint about that. St. Middle. If the church, the parish church well, of hold on. Saint... You're talking about the parish church. Yes. We're not talking about the parish church. We're talking about what do we have to do to suppress the parish. I then understand. Then we'll talk about the church. Hang on. Okay.
1: Calm down. All right. Say... The, the parish footprint of St. Middle mm-hmm. um, contains a lot of land mm-hmm. that was deeded over to the parish of St. Middle by a family uh, who used to own the farm in which, you know, the most of the town was built around mm-hmm. St. Middle. And they said, well, this is for our parish. This is for our parish, St. Middle. Mm-hmm. uh you know you have to you have to take into account the fact that Saint Middle as a juridic person exists and it has a certain stable patrimony and what's going to happen to that and do other people who have rights to say over well if saint middle doesn't exist anymore things like that um, all sorts of things like that you have to take the temperature of the people whose rights are affected by a process
0: you do um so the prudent, wise and prudent bishop in order to suppress the parish will. Um, will conduct listening sessions and hear from people uh, before he makes decisions, because there may be factors that um, he doesn't know about. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, the only thing the bishop has to do to suppress the parish is ask the Presbyteral Council for their opinion, and then, having heard their opinion, do what he likes. Um, what Ed—and um, and then he can suppress the parish. But suppressing the parish is not usually the thing that people are interested in when they talk about closing a parish. People are most often interested in what happens to the building. Because if the bishop suppresses the parish of St. Middle, that doesn't actually mean anything for the church where the people of St. Middle worship, right? I mean, there is the parish, the community, and that community has a church. Well, I mean, this goes to the common misconception. The parish is
1: not the church building. The
0: parish is not the building. The parish is is the people. The church, the parish is the people. So if he suppresses the parish... He hears the Presbyterian Council, he does it. But what happened to the church? That's the critical question.
1: Well, and this is part of the reason why I said there's a distinction to be drawn between extinctive merger and suppression. Yeah, okay, good, good, good enough. Yeah. Okay, but let's talk about what happens to the church. Okay, so what happens to the church is this. You cannot, just close, uh, you cannot just close willy-nilly church buildings that you decide you no longer need, that there has to be a compelling need, that it has to be shown that the church is no longer fit for purpose, it cannot be adequately maintained by the community that's been using it, Um, that there is no one who has a legitimate claim to the use of the building that could still exercise it. Basically, the bishop can do whatever he likes with the restructuring of parishes as groups of people with juridic personality in his diocese. But this sort of latitude of movement does not apply to the actual uh, closure of sacred spaces and relegating them to profane, not sordid use. Um, And the reason for that is, again, these are consecrated ground. These are things that, you know, are anticipated for perpetual use. So if the bishop wants to close a church building, first of all, there's a question of, well, who owns it? Because, again, the building belongs to the parish. And so if you suppress
0: the parish, then you have to figure out, oh, that's the thing. If you suppress the parishes, you have to figure out where the assets go. The assets have to go to some other juridic person. So presumably they're going in the direction of two other, uh, the, the
1: other parishes. Well, this is the thing is if you're doing a merger, then the assets flow with the juridic personality. So if you're splitting the parish in two, then the assets are somehow divided. Um, if the parish is being, if two parishes are being merged, then the sort of the new parish ends up owning them all. But also if you're just suppressing a parish outright, it can be that the the um, the goods of the of the suppressed person travel upstairs all the way straight to the bishop, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is another thing. But even if it's the bishop's quote unquote canonical property, it doesn't mean he can just close it.
0: Right. That's right. Um, in order to close it, uh, in order to close it, he needs to, uh,
1: what does he need to do? I think we need to go to Canon 1222. was just about to say. Can we start going to the law? Cause yeah, I'm, let's go I'm to 1222. I'm freestyling here a little bit and I don't like doing that. Here's what Canon
0: 1222 says. If a church cannot be used in any way for divine worship and there's no possibility of repairing it, the bishop can relegate it to profane but not sordid use. That first paragraph means um, that if the church is in absolute and total disrepair, the bishop can write a decree that says it can be used for something else. Um, but when other grave causes could suggest that a church can no longer be no longer be used for divine worship, so not that it it, it can't the be building repaired. itself not is not it's falling over not that it's falling over, but that it can't be maintained or there's not a need for it because the population shifts or something like that. The bishop can relegate it to profane but not sordid use if he hears the presbyteral council, that means gets consultation from the presbyteral council and then get the consent of those who legitimately claim rights for themselves in the church. Um, and provides that the su- the good of soul suffers no detriment thereby. So right. the bishop has to do kind of three things. First, he has to get the opinion of the Presbyteral Council. Then he has to make sure that no one has acquired some right to use the building over a period of time or something like that, that it's not like um, a building that the Franciscans have the right to um, uh, have mass in or something like that in, in, in canon law. But then he has to make sure that the good of soul suffers no detriment thereby. And that means he has to hear from the people who make use of the church, and mm-hmm. make sure that he has legitimately accommodated for in some other way the needs of you know their their spiritual needs um so that he's not closing the only church in town and people don't have a car or you know he's not closing the only church for 50 miles or something like that but that he's ensuring that um if this place for sacred worship is being closed the needs of the, the spiritual needs of people are
1: being met in some other way and and here's a funny thing about the law for the closure of church buildings Um, that I don't want to say often, but has on occasion tripped up uh, diocesan bishops in this country as they've sought to do the sort of thing that, for example, the Archdiocese of Cincinnati is doing, and, you know, look at the way that parishes are configured and things like that, is um, the reasons the grave causes required to close a church building have to be particular to that church. It has to be considered in isolation. It is not sufficient for the bishop to say— well, I've got um, 16 churches in this city and I only need eight. So half of them got to go and any, meeny, miny, that one, you know, that Rome will overturn that Rome has overturned that, that you have to show that there is some grave reason why that church is no longer suitable for divine worship is no longer necessary. There are grave causes that recommend its closure things like that. It has to be particular to that building. It has to be done on a case-by-case-by-case by case by case basis. It's also when he's t- we're talking about hearing, um, hearing the presbyteral council and presenting to them the case for, here's what I want to do, tell me what you think about it. Again, it has to be case by case. It's not sufficient for the bishop to go in and say, here's my grand plan. I want you all to say what a wonderful grand plan it is, approve it, and then we enact the grand plan. And that is, you know, I have heard you and, you know, you I have consulted you on each individual closure or merger or whatever else. That these things have to be done individually. Because, again, each of these things is a juridic, each parish is a juridic person. That each of these church buildings has its own constellation of people, like you were saying, with potentially acquired rights. Um, the good of souls is attached to the buildings. You know, my grandfather put the altar in that church. You know, you can't just pull it down and turn it into a cafe, you know, things mm-hmm. like that um that all these things have to be done on a case by case basis that it's that um the the law and the practice of rome you know enforcing the law is that this has to be done with incredible sensitivity it is not an easy project to do right that's right and i think you know i think <laughs> the consultation
0: is not pro forma but it it reflects this reality again that the parish is the community of um of the faithful and um and the, and the and the the diocese is a portion of the people of God. The diocese itself is a community of the Christian faithful with a hierarchical structure. But the diocese is not the building downtown. It is the communion of the of of the people of God in in, in a place, and um, and it is the bishop's responsibility, his sacred and solemn responsibility, to like see to the spiritual needs of the people in that place. And so that consultation again, it's not kind of pro forma, but it's like genuinely understanding what. The, uh, what the church kind of means, what the physical church means in people's spiritual lives. Now, on the other side, um, there is a necessity of sort of people understanding what the circumstances of the diocese are because, uh, you know, um, tr- maintaining churches costs money and people and time and personnel and all of those things have to be taken into account as well. But what's meant here in the church's own law is um, having heard each other and then sort of discerned what is best for, um, uh, for the spiritual needs of the Christian community.
1: Right, and uh, and often through and the process, that's called synodality. That is called synodality, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often, what will come out of that is is a better understanding of the real reality. Because, for example, a you know, again, uh, Bishop of Eagleton has eight uh, has sixteen churches and only needs eight. You know, practically speaking, he says this. You know, Saint Braithwaite is going to close, and if you have a proper consultation and you actually listen to people there, you might discover that while okay, it doesn't look like mass attendance is through the roof. There's a fairly stable group of people using that church on a more than weekly basis, and actually, they're more than capable of financially maintaining it. Right, and you're not going to have it as the parish church of the parish of St. Braithwaite anymore because you're suppressing that parish, and they're going to merge. But that community is more than capable of maintaining it as a chapel or an oratory, and it's not going to. You know, they're not expecting the bishop to provide for the upkeep of that building. They're saying yeah. this is our church. We've been coming here for generations, and we can keep it up. We you know maybe one day we won't be able to anymore. But for right now, it's, you know, we don't, there's no, there is no, in the words of law, grave cause for this church to close. Whereas another church might appear to have, you know, a lot of people going there every Sunday and be a bit more stable, but it turns out that the roof is a mess and Mm -hmm. there's no money in the bank and fixing it will be a nightmare and everything else. So, you know, hearing a, a really consultative process brings all of these things out that you wouldn't necessarily get just sort of looking at. Yeah, the first pass on the spreadsheet of what makes most sense. Yeah, that's right.
0: So that process, so, so suppressing a parish is actually a surprisingly, like by the requirements of the law, suppressing a parish actually requires surprisingly little co- consultation. You just have to hear the presbyteral council. But um, closing a church requires considerably more consultation. And then selling that church, let's say you selling that church requires not just consultation, but permission. Um, uh, so if you go to, Where should we go, Ed, to talk about selling a church? Uh,
1: Book five?
0: Um, If you go to... uh, Yeah, the 1290s. So actually, yeah. If you go to like 1292, 1291, 1292, um, the norms for selling things, uh, selling kind of... Bona Ecclesiastica, the ecclesiastical goods of the Contracts church, are, and especially are laid out. alienation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so we're going to talk about alienation, which is selling ecclesiastical things. Um, there's a process that the church lays out where, um, when the bishop is going to sell things, that uh, basically a series of financial thresholds are met, and um, when the bishop or the pastor, if the pastor for some reason is going to sell, when um, if the parish has not been suppressed. Um, when the pastor is going to sell up church or if for some reason the church is coming to the hands of the diocese, the diocese is going to sell the church. Um, there's a, a series of financial thresholds that are, that require different things. So there's a time when um, one can sell something with the consent of the college of consultors, which is a sort of senior group of priests in the diocese. So the bishop needs their permission to uh, their, their permission to sell things over certain, uh, certain thresholds or the pastor does. Um, there's a time when the bishop or the pastor needs the permission of the Holy See, Uh, To sell things, right? If they go, if they exceed, depending on kind of how much, uh, how many Catholics are in the diocese, if the diocese wants to sell something that's um, worth more than $500,000, then they need the permission of the Holy See. Or if it's Um, a particular artistic or something else mm-hmm. value. Yeah, I if think. it's a particular artistic value or historical value or something like that, you need the permission of the Holy See. So um, so there are these thresholds of permission So, um, for, for selling things effectively. So um, suppressing a parish, the law requires you to consult with the presbyteral council, but you'd be wise to suppress beyond that. Closing a church, which is a different act. Um, relegating a church to a profane but not sordid use, which is turning it into – something else, but you know, not a church, but not a strip club, which is assorted use, um, you need to um, consult with all of the people who are impacted by that. And the bishop needs to ensure that he is meeting their spiritual needs um, in real ways. And then selling that church, he needs permission from various people, either a group of priests in the diocese or the Holy See, depending on the amount of money that the thing costs. So did we cover that well? I think we covered it thoroughly. I think we covered it fairly thoroughly. There's yeah. a there's a canonical resource that I don't know if you visit very often. But there's a priest uh there was a priest in the class ahead of me at Canon Law School named uh Father Jason Gray, and um uh Jason, Father Jason is a priest of the Diocese of Peoria, and he's like the kind of person who makes resources available online just out of the goodness of his heart. And his he website jgray.org, and um Father Gray has a kind of um cheat sheet on the closure of parishes and sale of parishes and merger of parishes and things like that at jgray.org so if you're really interested in the closure of parishes and what's required um all the more than our discussion of it you can just um head to to that that resource which he's got a bunch of other canonical stuff on there too and i don't know if you've ever perused that but it was a nice you know i think what he did i think what father gray did was take a lot of his class notes basically type them up and put them online
1: he did uh i i am from our I have been familiar with his website. I, it came to me too late for comps. Oh. Like I already, I'd already made my own insane, comprehensive study notes and everything, and I was knee deep into. There were there were um, two of my classmates. The three of us would get together every day and essentially for the entire last semester, we would waterboard each other with canon law questions. Mm. Um, and so, by the time I learned about Father Gray's wonderful public source material for studying canon law, I I was already. Was already well into my own revision timetable, so I didn't use it for that. But yes, it is there and it is extremely useful.
0: Oh, there you have it. All right, buddy. There are many other things I wanted to talk about, but we are uh, we've been talking for quite some time, and I I hear the baby crying.
1: Can you really? Because I mean, I can, but I just I always can at this point. So I don't know if it's actually happening. Or no, not. I can. I can indeed.
0: Uh, we will be back next week to talk about very many more things. And before you go. If you are a listener of this podcast and you enjoy the conversations and discussions that Ed and I have, please remember uh, to go to PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe and become a paying subscriber to The Pillar, um, enabling us to continue to do this. If you value the work that we do, um, if you think it's news and conversation worth paying for, PillarCatholic.com slash subscribe. Please. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed... Mr. Synodality Condon. (laughs) Talk to you next week.